Wow. That gets to me every time I see it. Those kids, adults, unbelievably precious to God. This whole series is about God's love for every human being on the planet. It doesn't matter if you have disabilities or you're fully able. You are treasured by God. Wonderful. Subtitle, uh, overwhelmed by the love of God. And I'll just confess it again. That's what I'm praying happens for you and you and you and you is that somehow the love of God would be so real to you and that you'd know it, that you'd see it, that you'd feel it, that you'd be overcome by it more and more and more. Psalm 139, an incredible, incredible chapter. Well, I want to start by showing you a painting that uh, belongs to me, used to belong to my grandfather, George Sorensen. George died at the age of 97 years old. And he lived in his house for over half a century. And so when he died, all of us descendants had the sacred and sad responsibility of going through all of his stuff. Maybe you've done that before? Well, anyways, when we went through it all, we kind of handled his stuff in this way. And I think this is also common. All of us got to pick one or two things that we wanted to keep as a keepsake, a reminder of this man we loved so much And then we gave all the rest of it away or had to get rid of all the rest of the stuff. And I chose uh, this oil painting. My grandpa was from Norway. And this is a picture of Norway, beautiful. And it's a treasure to me because it was a treasure to him. And I wonder what you think of it. Maybe you're an art critic and you're seeing flaws and imperfections in it, you know, and putting your nose up, well, I don't care what you think. I love it, all right? Well, so that's this oil painting. And now let's come over. I want to show you another oil painting. And this one has a lot of the similar similarities to this one. Uh, it, it, this one, too, was owned by an old Norwegian guy. His name was Nicholas Mustad. Nicholas Mustad died also in his 90s. He had lived in his house for over half a century. His house was packed with stuff that his descendants had to go through. And this Norwegian guy loved art. And so he had a lot of paintings on his walls. And I'm going to call this one the rejected painting. I'm going to call it the rejected painting for one because Nicholas rejected it himself. He was profoundly in love with some of his stuff and he gave them a prominent place on the wall. This one he didn't love. He looked at it, and he thought, eh, I like others a lot better. And so he threw it in his attic. There were a few pieces of art up in the attic covered with dust and cobwebs because he didn't want it, like it. And then wouldn't you know, it's the, it's the rejected painting because not only did Nicholas reject it, his descendants rejected it too. They pulled out all the art and all the grandkids and kids were, you know, to take some pieces that they wanted to keep And every single one of these Norwegian descendants looked it over and said, ah, that's ugly, and took a pass on it. And this was part of the collection that was gathered up by some family members and brought to a local art store where it was presented to the owner there, do you want to buy any of these? And the art store owner, whose name has not been revealed to the public, he paid a price that has not been revealed to the public, though rumored to be just a few dollars. And he looked at it, and he said, yeah, that one. Uh, his heart starts beating. I, I think I'd like that one, you know. Tried to play it cool, bought it, 
packaged it up, brought it to Amsterdam to the Vincent van Gogh Museum where he asked the experts there if they would do an analysis. And right away, they couldn't believe it. Van Gogh had written about this painting. He had described it in a letter to his brothers and People knew of its existence, but for over a century, its whereabouts had been unknown. And sure enough, these professionals confirmed this is an original Vincent van Gogh, priced, valued at over $50 million. And all I can say is Norwegians are stupid. You know, can you believe that? I'm Norwegian, I can say that, so... Here's the takeaway that I have. You do not value a painting by what the peanut gallery in the vicinity thinks of it. You value a painting based on who is the creator. And when it's made by the master, it is precious. And that applies to us because we are pieces of art. We are creations. And the question of what do you, are you valued at is a fair question. You know, we value people all the time. Uh, we value people by saying, yeah, that, wow, that guy, that gal, they're a VIP. They're really impressive. And we really put a high value on certain people. And other folks, uh, you know, we're like, yeah, you know, nothing there. And, and I'll, I'll be honest, as people look at you, there are some who are unimpressed. Let's just put it that way. And, and they would say, you know, you don't have the stunning physical beauty that we're looking for. You don't have the accomplishments. You don't have the, the uh, you know, abilities. And so they would mark you low. Here's the good news. You do not determine your value by the opinions of the peanut gallery around you. You determine your value by asking the question, who made you? And what this verse we're about to study celebrates is that you, my friend, are the masterpiece of the master himself. God, king of the universe, molded and formed and created you. And as a result of that and that alone, you are infinitely valuable. So let's study, shall we? This is an awesome piece of scripture. I can't wait to dive into it with you. But just as a reminder of this series... We've been looking at evidences of God's love. The first is he, uh, his knowledge of us was week one. Remember, God is so into you. He knows everything about you. He's, he's, he's watching and he's celebrating what you say and what you do, even what you think. And as a result of that knowledge, it's an evidence of his love. And last week, we looked at his presence with us. God just can't bear to leave your side, wanting to be with you all the time. Boys, he love you. And this week, his creation of us, the fact that he molded you is an evidence of his great love. And these verses are incredible. Admittedly, the whole chapter of Psalm 139 is incredible, but I think you're going to like these. Verse 13, for you, David is speaking of God here. He says, you, God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. 
And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Mm. Let's start at the very beginning, going back to verse 13. I want to take a look with you and think about this first phrase. You created my inmost being. I'll confess, I never really loved this verse until this round of studying because I I discovered that inmost being is kind of an archaic way of just pointing to what's inside of us, our organs, (laughs) the systems of our body. Uh, David is saying, you created all my insides. And folks, David was a biologist, not professionally, but recreationally. He had a fascination with biology and all the created stuff of God. And I share his passion. I was a biology major back in college. And so this stuff really gets me excited too. Well, David is marveling that God is the one that invented, that designed, that built the machine that he is. And their knowledge of the bodies, organs, and systems back then was so small compared to what we enjoy today. And if you've done some study of how the human body works, you, like David, should say, Lord, wow, did you create something amazing. I I took animal physiology when I was a young man, and that was the class in which you studied all the systems of the body. It was a spiritual journey for me. I'm not kidding you. I I knew that the systems of the body were complex, but never until I studied did I see the brilliance. When you look under the hood of a car, you're like, oh, that's cool. When you look under the hood, as it was, of the human body, it's unbelievable. I, I sometimes look at my hand, it, and I move my hand, and I think of all that's going into that simple movement. Admittedly, the hand is a relatively simple part of the body, but Even here, I I said, wow, the skeletal system and the muscular system and the nervous system and the circulatory system and the lymphatic system, all that's going on, this brilliant machine. And I just, I step back and I go, who invented this? God did. He's the designer, the engineer. He is the creator. And I'm going to celebrate him as David did as a result. Now, the passage goes on. You knit me. Let's talk about that. You knit me together in my mother's womb. All of this amazing complexity was created inside of nine months in the mother's womb. David can't believe that. And I can't either. Have you been amazed by embryology? You know, the study of this microscopic cells in nine months all by themselves forming this complex, multi-systemed, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And David uses the imagery of knitting to convey how God creates. Uh, It's a really powerful imagery. I I don't knit personally. I uh, wouldn't admit to you if I did, probably. But I have seen people knit, and I know that knitting is a unique way of creation because it's one little knot at a time linked together. Some, you know, like you could paint in a big swash and color a lot But knitting is unlike that. It's meticulous. And David says, God, when you created me, you created every little part of me. Today we know that we're comprised of cells. God made every cell and connected them and linked them into tissue and organs and systems. And God shows his interest in us, his brilliance, his creativity, and his love. 
in that I was made, knit by him in my mother's womb. Isn't that cool? He goes on, he says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What does that mean to be fearfully? I know what wonderfully made, but fearfully made? I've always kind of been bothered by that term. But here's what it means. It means that it's awe-inspiring when you understand that all the complexity in the human body happens inside of the pregnant mom in nine months' time. You shouldn't, when you look at how that all happens, go, oh, that's cool. No, it's more than cool. It is awesome. It is tremble-inducing. David says, I I find myself shaking in awe when I look at the miracle of what happens with that microscopic cell becoming a bouncing baby girl or boy. Folks, and what's this induce in David? He says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Embryology leads to worship. I don't know if that works in you that way, but it's supposed to. In fact, all that God made is supposed to induce worship in us. God made outer space as extraordinary as he did, and he made the trees and the, and the grass and the water and animals and the human body as brilliantly as he did so that we would know he is and we know, would know he's brilliant and that he's loving and that he's creative and he's good, and we would worship him as a result. Bible is so clear on that. The created world is supposed to convince us of God's reality and lead us to a place of adoration and worship. And uh, I just ask, is it happening in you? Did you worship back in biology class? Some of you are like, I haven't been to biology class in so long. Well, welcome to biology class. We're going to spend a little time ourselves right here. David is mesmerized by the complexity that happens over the nine months of pregnancy. So let's review, shall we? Maybe you forgot how this all works. Let's start here. This is a sperm entering an egg, all right? This is the moment of conception. And this is more than mere biology. This is sacred, sacred, holy Folks, when a half cell and a half cell come together, that is the moment that human life begins. From that moment on, a steady process of development is in occurrence. And and the result is, is remarkable. And so when you, this was you at one point, you know, you were these two half cells that came together, and at that moment, you began. You say, I was so small, I was only one cell. Yes, but fully human at that very moment. So after day one, uh, you were one cell. Day two, you were two cells. You know, this brilliant form of spreading the DNA material and organelles went to two. Day three, you became four cells. And I read that even in day three, when there are four cells, though they look identical, each of these cells is already starting to specialize in preparation for its future function in the unique location It serves in the human body. Isn't that incredible? So that's day three. On day four, it starts to speed up. You become 25 cells. At day seven, you are 100 cells. And this is on day seven is when you implant in the wall of your mother's uterus. And all of a sudden, this plumbing system called the placenta and the umbilical cord start to get in place so that you can have nourishment temporarily available to you while you're in utero. 
Do you know on the 18th day, the heart starts beating? Isn't that incredible? 18 days after conception. Here's uh, seven weeks. Seven weeks uh, into the pregnancy, you've already got little feet and toes and hands and fingers. 16 weeks into the pregnancy, look at the ears, eyes, nose, lips, blood vessels forming. 20 weeks into the pregnancy, precious. 36 weeks into the pregnancy, <laughs> this poor kid is like, get me out of here! I have claustrophobia! I got my knee in my mouth for crying out loud! <laughs> and the mom is agreeing at this point, get him out of here! You know, he's way too much. Folks, that is incredible! I hope you are in awe because that transformation from microscopic cells into a beautiful, powerful, functioning baby is one of the greatest miracles on planet Earth, and it proclaims the glory of God and should lead to worship of him. And what does it say about us? Well, let's go back to the verse. Your works are wonderful. One of the most profound statements in Scripture, if you really internalize this, your works, God, all that you do is wonderful by nature of the fact that you've done it. And so here's what I'd ask of you. Are you a work of God? Did he make you? And the answer is yes. Well, what's the implication? You are wonderful. Maybe you need to start walking around and proclaiming that a little more. You know, hey, nice to meet you, by the way. I'm wonderful. You probably don't want to describe yourself as wonderful because you're painfully aware of all of the flaws that are in you, and I'm not arguing with you on that point. We've all got our flaws. In fact, all of the created world is a mixture of the original created perfection and flaws. The flaws are there as a result of the fall. Remember this spiritual rebellion when humanity turned away from God and said, we don't need you, and the curse that resulted, the punishment that came as a result of that decision. And so when we look at even the body, we look at all creation, it's the beautiful original creation and the curse, but when we look at the body, we see the same thing. There's the brilliance of the original design, and there are signs of the fall, the curse. The stiffness of my back when I get up in the morning is evidence of the curse. As I get older, as we all get older and things don't work like they used to, that breakdown is the curse. Physical and mental disabilities, sickness, disease, injury, all that's wrong with the human body is a result of the curse. Someday God's going to fix all of that and bring us back to a place of perfection. But even though we've got issues it doesn't take away from the fact that we are fundamentally a work of God, and as a result, fundamentally, we are wonderful as such. And I would tell you, you're wonderful because you're a work of God, but you're more than wonderful. In fact, all of creation is wonderful because God made it, but only you, only humanity is made in God's image. And because, you know, the, the Latin is the imago Dei, since we have the image of God in us, we stand out from the rest of creation as unbelievably sacred to the Lord. Folks, that is the truth about you as according to this passage. You know, here's what I want to do. I actually want to talk about some implications of this truth. I, I want to ask, so, okay, God molded us and made us, and we're precious because of that. What does that mean 
to how we live. And the first point of uh, application I want to make is the topic of abortion. Can we put the word abortion up on the screen here? I want to jump right in. You know, all of a sudden I put the word up and some tension and anxiety goes on in the room here. And allow me to First of all, speak to those who have had an abortion. You know, the statistics indicate that one in three women, and so in a room this size, there's a lot of ladies in this place who have had an abortion. And, and I want to jump in and talk to you real quickly because the goal here is not to make you feel terrible about yourself. Uh, I, I believe that abortion is a horrible sin, but it's not the unpardonable sin. There is forgiveness available in Jesus Christ and healing. And so to all of you who are in that boat, my prayer is that this moment as we talk about this will be part of that journey to freedom and healing because Christ is standing with arms wide open saying, I want to help you over this past decision. In fact, can I show you a ministry? There's, there's a ministry called Restore. It's right here in DuPage County. It's part of CareNet, which is a partner of ours. We are involved with working with them and financially supporting them. They have a post-abortion ministry. And I have a dear friend of mine who got an abortion back in college. And even though decades passed, she was unable to get emotionally over this. It plagued her and just followed her everywhere she went. And it wasn't until she joined a ministry like Restore where Christians got around her. They understood and they helped her process that, get past that. The beautiful freedom became uh, her enjoyment. So I would encourage all of you who would find this to be the right move to take that courageous step and into life in its fullness and freedom. With that compassion said, we need to have a frank talk about abortion because abortion, to call it prevalent, is an understatement. Roe v. Wade in 1973 made abortion legal in the United States, and since that time, 50 million American babies have been killed. And I I phrase it that way, and some would say, don't call it killed. It was a pregnancy that was terminated. There, There was no killing involved. And that's the question. Is there killing involved? Is a preborn child human? And, you know, there are some who would just say, no, it's just a piece of flesh. Well, when we look to this passage and we seek to understand from God's perspective, this very verse, maybe more than any other in the Bible, celebrates the unbelievable value of preborn humans. They are the workmanship of God, and how sacred they are to the Lord is so evident in this text. And so, folks, uh, we need to just say it. According to Scripture, what makes you a human is not your size. It's not your abilities or your level of physical development. What makes you human is the image of God. And the minute those two microscopic cells come together, that seamless process has begun. And you are human in the image of God. All the DNA that's going to make you who you are is already in place and it's starting to work out. The fact that you're in the uterus or out of the uterus doesn't change your humanity. The fact that you're this big instead of this big does not change your humanity. Humans are humans not by what they're capable of, but by who they are made by and whose image they reflect. And so as a result, uh, to kill a a preborn child is to kill a child. 
And I know the case is made, don't women have a right to their own bodies? They do, absolutely. But they do not have a right to take the life of another human being. And, and that's what abortion is. And there are still one million a year in the United States alone that are aborted. And that million number, some of you may say, it's only 600,000. I'm including those who use the abortion pill. Uh, it's a, a pharmaceutical way of doing it, but it's still doing the same thing and killing an unborn child. And this is an atrocity and something that must be addressed. And God calls us as Christians to be the defender of the powerless. And so that's a fair question. How do we defend these powerless kids who are in such a violent domain? And and I want to offer some ways that as Christians we can do something about this problem. And so I put it out there for your consideration. Maybe you've got more ideas than I offer. The first is to vote accordingly. You know, we're in an election season, and one of the great privileges we have as Americans is the right to vote, to elect the government officers who write the law. And this topic has got to be a big part of our voting decision. Admittedly, it's not the only issue, but it is a, do children matter to God? Yes. And so this is a very profound Uh, matter where we need to wrestle with where these candidates stand on this important matter in the hopes and prayer of someday having laws that outlaw killing of children after the womb and children still in the womb. So voting is one thing we can do. Here's another. We can teach our kids the truth. One of the things that's happening is our culture drifts from the ways of God. The only way the younger generation is going to know the ways of God is if we effectively teach them the ways of God. And so let's start with teaching our kids about sex. You know, the, the culture increasingly says sex is just kind of a recreational game. You can do it wherever, whenever, with whoever. And God says, no, that's not what I created it for. God said, I made sex to be extraordinary and sacred and the privilege and enjoyment of a couple that loves each other above all others and has committed themselves to the covenant of marriage. God says there's where it was intended, and there's where, when it results in a pregnancy, it's not unwanted, but it's celebrated in the family results. And so we got to teach our kids that sex is for marriage. They're not going to get... It's awkward. I'm, I'm at that stage. I'm talking to all three of my kids about this regularly, and it causes them to blush, and me too. But it must be explained because they're never going to get the vision of God if not from us. We've got to teach our kids that abortion is not an option. Help them to see it for what it is. So, uh, Lord forbid, they find themselves in that situation. They can make a biblically-based decision. So, two things. Vote. Teach your kids. Here's another. Counsel women who are in a crisis pregnancy. Uh, you know, with them, as common as it is, you will likely have an opportunity to talk with someone wrestling with what to do. And one of the greatest ministries of the Lord and to an unseen person is for you to advise a pregnant girl in the ways of God in this moment. This is real close to, to me because my youngest two kids were unplanned, unwanted pregnancies. And in both cases, God-loving people came around the birth moms of my younger two 
and challenge them to follow the ways of God and to true to choose the godly path. And both of them chose. And as a result, my kids are alive and well. Thank you. In fact, Jake, my nine-and-a-half-year-old, oh, save your applause for this one. Jake, my nine-and-a-half-year-old, on Tuesday night, uh, prayed to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Huh? I was worrying about Jake just a bit because he was boasting of his non-Christian status. He's like, you know, all of you are Christians, but I'm not yet. I'm like, I know that, Jake. I know. I'm kind of <laughs> hoping that you will be someday. And this week he said, Mom, I, w- I want to pray to receive Jesus. And he got it, man. He's running around the house. I'm a Christian! And I see this redemptive work in him and all the life he brings and I think to myself, praise God, his birth man was counseled the way she was and made the choice she did. So counsel women to make the right choice. Support women who make the right choice. You know, this get around them and say, I'm in your corner and I'm going to help you through this. And I, I look at this restore ministry and I wonder if some of you aren't led to join them and partner with them as they seek to minister to ladies who are in this situation. So, uh, Vote and teach and counsel and help care for those who are making the courageous decision. Uh, adopt. I, you know, part of uh, God's strategy is that there would be many families. we got so many. It seems like I'm seeing more and more adoption in our church all the time. As folks say, adoption is the alternative to abortion. And let's celebrate and walk in that. I would add, I, would, this is, I feel this, and I hope you see it too. All that we do to advance the cause of Christ at the church is a counter-abortive measure. What I mean by that is our church mission is to love him more, so more love him. As more and more people find Christ and new life with Christ, as the kingdom of God grows numerically, as the voting populace is reflecting passion for Jesus and his ways more and more, the culture will be affected by that spiritual revival brought about by the church of Jesus Christ. And so every time you lead somebody to Christ, it's actually one more step away from the evil of abortion. And so let's do what we can in a God-honoring way to be a part of the solution to this great problem. I promised you that we're going to have two applications. One of them is abortion, but the other one is maybe even more personal to you, and that's self-esteem, okay? Self-esteem. Every one of us is in a battle to determine our own self-worth. Kind of goes back to the painting principle. We are surrounded by some people who are unimpressed with us. And it's real easy to have a down opinion and maybe even have self-loathing thoughts. I am pathetic. I am disgusting about yourself. And so how do you, how do you battle that? Well, here's the key. You find your value not in the opinion of the masses but in the eyes of the master, you look to God and you say, you made me. What does that say about me? And it's easy for me to preach it. It's tough for me to live it. And I'll tell you, I struggled this week in living this out. I'll give you an example. I went out to lunch with a pastor this week. I was very excited and honored that this guy invited me to come to his town and to go out and enjoy a lunch with him. He's a very successful pastor, and so I was feeling pretty important as I drove out there. But that did not last very long. My self-importance was 
quickly diminished when I met him. And I'm like, whoa. Uh, He's about six inches taller than me and about six inches more narrow than me. (laughs) And just chiseled good looks. I mean, stunning. And suddenly I felt very uh, frumpy. We'll go with that word. (laughs) Felt frumpy in comparison. Well, we go out to lunch, and I'm like, hey, tell me your story, good-looking guy. And, uh, and then he, he started sharing, and I guess when I went to college, I said, where did you go to college? I said, uh, Yale. And I'm like, is that a community college around here? No. I did not say that. But, uh, I, he said, oh, then I went to grad school. And I go, where'd you go to grad school? He said, Princeton. I'm like, I think I've heard of that one, too, you know? He goes, then I got my doctorate. Oh, man. Now I'm feeling frumpy and stupid. I mean, I'm not doing well. After lunch, we were going back to his church, and I said, hey, would you give me a tour around your facility? And he's like, sure. And we walked around. This place was gorgeous. And he showed me a spot where they're doing an addition. They're in the early stages of doing a $27 million addition to this already spectacular facility. And as we tour further, we go into the television studio where his preaching is spread into television and radio all over the nation. Can you see my problem? I felt so insignificant and pathetic by the time the lunch was over. And as I describe my problem to you, I see the compassion in so many of your eyes. And some of you want to step forward and just say, come on, Jeff, be encouraged. The Compass Church is nothing to sneeze at. I mean, we've got a good thing going here. You should be proud. And Jeff, uh, I wouldn't exactly describe you as having chiseled good looks, but I've seen worse. You know, come on. (laughs) If you were wanting to encourage me, that's wrong. Not the desire to encourage me, but the direction you want to go. I do not prove that I'm of value by trying to build a case that compared to others, I'm okay. The direction of proving my value is found in the face of God. And folks, uh, I'll I'll build the case uh, because I am wonderful and I want to tell you about it. I am wonderful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in the womb of my mother by God himself. He designed every part of this brilliant machine, and God loves me as his created work. And he sent Christ to die for my sins, and I have been forgiven and adopted into his family, and I am treasured by my Father. And that's all I need. Church size, weight, belt, you know, it doesn't matter. And can I apply it to you? Because the voices are going to be there if they're not already. You're pathetic. You're disgusting. You know what? That's a lie from the pit of hell. And in that moment, we need to turn to God and his truth and say, I know who I am. I am created by the Almighty, a masterpiece of his. Because his signature is on my life, I am of a valuable value that's inconceivable to the human mind. Christ has died for me. He has forgiven me. He has adopted me, and he treasures me. And I don't need to impress you with the way I look or what I've done because I have all that I need as far as value found in the Lord. So, With that said, let's pray.
God, we just want to thank you for this truth that's so easy to say, hard to believe and to live, but we ask that you'd help us to live it. Please, God. There are so many of my friends, brothers and sisters, who are struggling even now, thinking that they're pathetic and awful. God, would you show them who you are, that you are not just the king of kings and master, you are their father. Help them to see that you look with father-loving eyes upon them even now. You're the loving Father. Help them to see that they are your kid. No matter what the world thinks, God, help them to see even now that their fundamental identity is the one loved by you. God, help them to know that's who they are, the one loved by the Father. And God, as we pray about this truth, as we're about to sing this truth, help us to live this truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.